no one ever prepares you for what it might feel like to walk out the hospital without a baby. Losing a baby is difficult even to contemplate, let alone talk about. Kia ora, welcome to this episode in Season 2 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, Church Minister, Chaplain and Radio Broadcaster. Recovering is a Media Chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode, I sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them both personally and professionally. In this episode, I sat down with Susie Ferguson. Susie will be familiar to much of the country for her years co-hosting Morning Report on RNZ. She came to Aotearoa, New Zealand in 2009, but prior to that, her work was in Britain as a broadcaster with the BBC and ITN. Her experience has taken her into conflict zones in a number of countries. We took an opportunity to discuss that and its impact on her. After years of waking up at ungodly hours to present Morning Report, Susie's work at RNZ is in the process of shifting, giving her the ability to explore stories at a deeper level. Along those lines, we had a conversation about her podcast, The Unthinkable. In five parts, it explores the harrowing journey of parents who lose their child, an issue that impacts so many whānau around Aotearoa. For Susie, the story began with friends of hers. Susie, thank you for jumping onto Recovering. Thank you for hosting us at RNZ. I've done one other interview with, uh, I think it was Logan Church back in the day at RNZ following the Christchurch shooting. So it's nice to be back. And hopefully, well, no, it's probably not going to be a more relaxed conversation when I think about it, <laughs> but it's a pleasure to have you. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, you've been, uh, you've been around the media traps for, for a little while, uh, and of course New Zealand knows you as our uh, RNZ breakfast host, Morning Report, uh, for quite a number of years now, uh, but you're about to shift on into other things. Yeah, I sure am. It's been, I think it'll be about eight and a half years by the time I finish up. Um, been hosting Morning Report for what seems like a, a long time. It's it's thousands of shows when you you know when you kind of look back on it. Um, but I think the time comes for I mean the time's come for me to move on. But also the time I think is good for the program to to have a bit of a renewal. You know, Corin's been um, in the chair for about three years I think now, and it just it felt to me like the the time was right for for everyone to have a bit of a change and um you know i needed to spread my wings and do some slightly different things and um go on to a new stage of of my career and my storytelling and so you know, for a lot of reasons, it's it's not going to be a 4am wake-up call, so I'm not going to miss that, that's for sure. I think there are a lot of people who are probably going to miss you. There's one phrase that I see pop up on Twitter every now and then, as a Twitter aficionado, where a politician's just been grilled, or you've really given someone a good going over, which is mm. what media's supposed to do, and then Twitter starts talking about how they've been Susied. Yes, I think that might be Simon Bridges' fault. <laughs> I think that's. I think he maybe coined that phrase. Um, I'm not sure. It was certainly around the time that he was the leader of the National Party that that kind of first um, emerged. And um, I don't know. It's uh, it's it's kind of funny. It, it's funny how people um, and lovely actually how people co-opt you to being their own. I think that's one of the really powerful things about radio. It's one of the things I love about radio is that it is that there is that intimacy. You are talking to people while they're lying in bed or in the shower, or and so you you know, morning report is their program, 
Um, and I've been lucky enough to to be there for eight years hosting it. But it's very much um, the property of other people, and you're you know you're the caretaker. Mm. Looking back over your career, you've done a lot, uh, and I think back to reporting in Britain and 2003 being embedded in Kuwait. We we're talking off air, and you mentioned that it was three weeks going from getting the job to then being in a war zone. Mm. How prepared were you? Oh, not at all. And actually, as I get older, looking back on that time, um, I I begin, I think, to understand some of the terror that my mother was facing. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was 25 and it was the opportunity of a lifetime. Um, not one that I'd gone after. I'd never wanted to be a war correspondent. I remember the first day of um, journalism school as doing my postgrad and... Um, that one of the tutors said, right, who here wants to be a war correspondent? And about half cl- half the class put their hand up and I wasn't one of them. And the only other person that I know has done that kind of work from my cohort was the woman sitting next to me and she didn't put her hand up either. Mm. So um, it, it very much found me rather than the other way around. Um, and I, I'd been doing some work um, with this organisation and a reporter job came up at New Year 2002 into 2003 and that was the point where already for a a couple of months, three months maybe there had already been the build up starting of mainly American but also British troops on the borders of Iraq and it was pretty clear by that point that something was going to happen Um, and yeah this job came up and I just thought oh that looks interesting and you know, it's. I've not been ever one for five year plans or whatever, and so I thought, oh well, that looks like an interesting job. Let's see if, see if I get it. And I was asked in the interview if I'd be prepared to go to Iraq, and I said yes. Um, did you, when you got asked that, did you have any inkling that it could or would happen? Did you take the question seriously? I, I mean, I, I suppose I did in the sense that I knew you could see the way the wind was blowing mm. on that. But then when it actually came to it, I got the job and uh, and then I was told, oh, you'll probably be at Central Command in Qatar and you'll be, you know, doing more work around that end of things. So I was like, oh, that's, you know, great. You know, it's still going to be amazing. And there was a meeting that I had to go to with one of my colleagues in the British Ministry of Defence because it was all kind of controlled by the Ministry of Defence, like who you were embedded with, which bit of the British Army or Navy or Marines or whatever. And... We we went into this meeting and there was various bits of chat and it was very much being led by my colleague. And then the guy on the other side of the desk, um, he was a kind of a classic British. He was exactly what you'd think of by a, a British officer. You know, he had a, a big sort of moustache and he was a squadron leader and he, you know, had this kind of, you know, particularly sort of accent. And he said, oh, do you not want, do you not want two tickets to go? And my colleague and I sort of looked at each other and went, oh, yeah, sure, two would be great. And kind of stumbled out of the Ministry of Defence. And I turned to him, Rory, my colleague, and I said to him, did we just agree? Did I? Have we just agreed to what I think we just agreed to? And he went, yeah, 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 we have. <laughs> I was like, oh, OK. And I spoke to my mum that night on the phone. She was, you know, oh, how's it going? How's the new job going? I said, oh, I was at this meeting and um, I think I'm going to be a war reporter, mum. And she genuinely dropped the phone. I can imagine. There was this kind of thud on the other end of the line and she dropped the phone and 
picked it back up and she said, oh, what, you've done what? And I said, I think I'm, I think, like, well, I don't know, I think I'm going to be a war reporter. And three weeks later, I was living out of the back of a tank with three guys I didn't know. That's incredible. In a desert that it's, I'd never been to. And so that, that three weeks, crash course in... Crash course in, yeah, how to be a war reporter 101. Yeah. Um, so I did a hostile environment course, which is a week-long um, thing that's run by sort of former members of the SAS. Uh, this is in the UK, in a hotel in like leafy Surrey or somewhere. And um, you get taught all sorts of battlefield first aid and... Um, you know, and it's you know it's obviously the kind of CPR and those kind of things that you learn in regular first aid courses. But then you know it's and then more you know and then about blast injuries and about shrapnel and about how to deal with bullet wounds and you know quite confronting kind of stuff. And um, so there's a lot of first aid. There's a lot of you learn about different kinds of um, weapons and obviously what the dangers are, but also you know, how not to stand behind an RPG when it's being fired because it's got, you know, because it gives off stuff out of the back and just things like that as well. And they put you through lots of scenarios, which is really sort of um, interesting practical learning. So you're, um, you know, you'll be doing something outside and then all of a sudden they'll start, you know, in quotes, dropping mortars on you or whatever it might be or suddenly there's a grenade on the ground and you have to get outside the, the kill zone, as it's known. Um, and the the one that really stayed with me was the kidnap scenario, which was, at some you're told that at some point in your five days on this residential course, you will be kidnapped. Okay, fine. You know, you just, okay, fine. Um, and then when it actually happens, it's, uh, I was in a Land Rover, I think, or something, and um, literally a bunch of guys jumped out of the bushes at us and they're all, you know, holding pretend weapons and all the rest of it. It looks very real. And I I couldn't... Um, I, I couldn't stop myself going into, I guess, some sort of shock. I couldn't control my breathing. Um, I mean, it was terrifying. You're... Um, you're handcuffed, you, they put a, a bag on your head, you're bundled in and out of vehicles, you're um, walked, you know, very fast across rough ground. So people are stumbling and, you know, you can hear other people around you. And it, it like the, the heightening of your senses is something else when you're, mm. you know, when your sight is literally taken away. Um, you're put into stress positions with your, you know, your, your arms, um, up like a like a star jump sort of thing and if and and you're left there for what seems like hours but it's probably only a few minutes and as your arms begin to drop the the butt of a gun will kick your arm back up the wall that you're standing against you know as if you're about mm. to be executed or something and it's i mean it's terrifying um and so that was one thing that i did you know completed this course um so that was one week. <laughs> and then I also did a couple of other courses that the army kind of insisted um, that people who were going through this embedded um, war correspondent uh, situation were put through. And that was in connection with, um, they were called NBC courses. So that stands for Nuclear, Biological and Chemical. Because um, that's what the governments at the time were telling uh, the world that you know Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and um, he wasn't going to be frightened to use them and so everywhere you went you ended up with uh, what the army call a respirator what you and I would call a gas mask you know it looks like a like something out of the you know Chernobyl 
TV series. And you, you have to learn how to use it properly. And there are also other bits of safety equipment, NBC suits, which are these kind of charcoal lined pants and jacket that you have to wear and uh, you know there's all sorts of stuff about what happens if you end up in a situation where uh, a weapon's been let off or if a if you know liquid chemical weapons are dropping from the sky if they get on your skin what do you do all this kind of stuff so it's 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 a pretty fast not to 60 mm. ride before you then get on the plane with 100 150 or however many other war correspondents there were who were ending up with um, other bits of the British army and you're you're literally dropped in the desert and told to get on with it. Tell me where to go in asking this question if you want to, but can I ask how old you were? I was 25. 25? Yeah, I was a child, <laughs> literally. looking, And because it's 20 years in March since yeah. the war. And it, looking back on it now, especially from the benefit of, you know, um, New Zealand... It feels like a, another lifetime, another person's lifetime, actually. But, um, but, but such uh, such an extraordinary six years that mm. I had, and it was a hell of a baptism of fire. Um, I remember coming back from. I think initially I was there for about six or seven weeks, and coming back and saying to my um, boyfriend at the time, now my husband. I think I could talk to you for the rest of my life about Iraq and I will never, you will never understand what it was like. Mm. It's, I mean, people talk about something like war being life-changing and it is. And it is in, sort of in every, it, it changes every cell in your body. Yeah. Yeah, we well, see a lot of things that we're not designed to see as yeah. human beings. You go yeah. through experiences that we're not designed to go through Yeah. as human beings. And we shouldn't go through, yeah. actually. And I don't agree you know war is always a failure I always tell my children that that you mm. know you see terrible things on the TV and I always say to them war is always a failure it's always the last resort um, it shouldn't even really be the last resort in a lot of cases but it's what humans seem to <laughs> go for um, but it is you, you, you have to deal with situations that nothing prepares you for it. I mean, you're asking me what, you know, what did I do ahead of going? And it was a very woe-to-go few weeks that I went through. But I'm not sure if any more training would have been better or that I would have been any more prepared. I don't think you are ever prepared until you actually, until you're actually there. And when the shooting starts, then there you go. That's, that's your preparation. Um, and in a way, maybe more preparation would have been bad because then you know, you're maybe more inoculated to it. Mm. I'm glad you're still here. <laughs> yes, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> thinking through that, then thinking through uh, reporting the, the big earthquake in Pakistan and mm. there's the Boxing Day tsunami. Again, we're not made to experience any of, the, any of these things. They have to have left scars. Oh, yes. I mean, they were, um, they were both extraordinary the aftermath of those natural disasters was extraordinary to witness. I mean, I saw the the aftermath of the um, Pakistan earthquake was in some of the most like achingly beautiful parts of the world in in that part of Pakistan. And I mean, I feel actually enormously, I don't know if this is the right thing to say almost, but or the right way to express it, but I actually feel enormously privileged to have been there because it is such a beautiful part of the world and and flying you know through 
those sorts of areas of Pakistan and the and the Hindu Kush mountain range and helicopters is, you know, the kind of stuff that you'd pay a fortune to be able to do. And the thing that was extraordinary about that earthquake to me was you'd be flying, you know, flying along and a lot of the areas are very rural. Um, once you got out of Islamabad, the capital, where a lot of the um, relief effort was coming from, and you'd get to Muzaffarabad, which was um, the biggest town sort of at the epicentre. And from the air, it looked okay. You couldn't see that anything was wrong. And then the helicopter would land and you'd get out and you'd see that basically every building of every type, houses and schools and all, everything had just pancaked. So from above, you'd see these intact roofs mm. and it looked fine. And it was when you got on the ground, you realised that no, nothing and no one was getting out of those buildings. So that was actually quite horrifying. The tsunami was... Um, that was an extraordinary experience. I was in... I was um, reporting from Sri Lanka, from the eastern Tamil side of Sri Lanka, because Sri Lanka was at war in the midst of mm. that as well. And I was based in a town called Batikaloa, which was really poor. I mean, the Tamil side of Sri Lanka is really poor anyway. And it took about two days just to get there. And I mean, Sri Lanka is not that big an island, but because as you drive across the middle of the um, island, the roads as you get into the Tamil side become progressively worse and worse and worse. And I remember driving into um, the area near Batikaloa and people had um, there were lots of white uh, fabric hung on you know, outside every house and stuff. And I remember saying to um, the guy who was my driver, you know, why is the white everywhere? And he said, oh, it's the colour of death. And getting to the beach, the, the seaside, and walking along the beach at Batikaloa, which is stunning, you know, absolutely beautiful. Um, and there was a row of trees that were just a bit back from the beach, you know, in the same way as you'd get them here, you know, you've got the beautiful sand expanse and then often you get trees at the edge. And it looked like every one of these trees, they looked like, I don't know, pine trees or something, had just been ripped out of the ground. And there was a metal, huge metal pylon by the side of the beach that was bent and was the, the metal of the structure was lying along the ground from the water. And a little bit further on, there were people who were bringing the bodies ashore of people who'd been sucked out to sea and were washing back up on the beach. And, like, the horror in paradise of that was very hard to understand because your brain sees the beauty of it, trying to make sense of that with these juxtaposing images of this huge natural violence that had been wrought upon the area and you know the water that had gone into people's homes you could see the tide mark that it had come up to and it was not quite it wasn't taller than me but it was probably up about to my sort of chest or shoulder height so it was high and they'd lost everything and the water was contaminated and they didn't know where people were people were displaced and it was all gone you know and it was that was a horrifying but very peaceful scene to contemplate. And that mm. was the, the that added to the strangeness that you could see what had happened 
because you were in the aftermath of it, but it made no sense. Mm. Just want to draw a picture for people for a second because this is audio. We're used to radio and people can't see what you were doing just then, but mm. your eyes, your hands, as mm. you told that story, were reconstru- reconstructing mm. that memory and that image in your head mm. just then. These are things that uh, are going to be with you until the day that you they, that, the day that you pass. They're images that are going to be there forever. Yeah. How does it not eat you up? Oh, I think it probably did for a while. What did that look like? Um, oh, it's pretty messy. Um, I when I came back from Iraq in two thousand and three, so I'd <laughs> I'd done my first two months as a war reporter, and it was about the June of that year that things began to get a little bit rocky, and I, I actually wasn't aware of it, and I had an incredibly um, an incredibly good boss and friend, and she'd actually been away on parental leave when all of this had happened. She was my editor, but she'd actually not been there when when the war had been happening. And uh, someone else, another one of my colleagues at work, um, sort of raised the alarm with her. And um, her name's Laura Ray, and she was amazing. She kind of came in, and even though she was sort of, you know, a, a, a new mum and just dealing with this huge life change that she had gone through, she very gently broached the subject that maybe I needed to talk to somebody about what was going on because my behaviour was out of character (laughs) Um, which I think was probably a very nice way of saying you're self-destructing and you need to (laughs) stop pressing that button Susie and and work were amazing actually they got me help I got a um, a psychologist psychiatrist that I saw and did some quite intensive work with him and um, and I actually did quite a lot with him on and off over the next few years because I was a war reporter and sort of doing this kind of work for six years. So, um, you know, it was it was a bit of a long haul, I suppose. And there were times when I didn't work as much because that was kind of the doctor's prescription was you need to work three or four days a week rather than five days a week. Or there were definitely things to, to sort of work through and deal with. Um, it changed my stress response and I think my stress response has never actually come back to the equilibrium that it had before, if that's if the equilibrium is the right word. Um, I became incredibly good at dealing with stressful situations, like high stress situations, like bombs are being dropping all around you or whatever. And I can keep talking and I can keep carrying on and I'm absolutely fine and completely in control. But then if I'm in my car stuck in traffic and I'm late for an appointment, I would I would start crying. Yeah. I couldn't I just couldn't cope with normal stress. And so I kept going to various places around the world, you know, the Iraq and Afghanistan and Sierra Leones of the world, because actually they not quite became my happy place, because that sounds really screwed up. But I but I they didn't stress me out. Normal life stressed me out. It's when you come home, it's when you have to deal with the mundane. And where things start going wrong. That's what I couldn't handle. And I think even now, it's sort of left me with a, a, a bit of a superpower around, you know, if, if everything is falling apart, that's okay. I can still talk to you and I'll still be calm and it'll still be fine. Mm. So I don't think that's ever quite going to change. So it, it definitely left that. But I mean, the diagnosis that I got was that I was moderate to severely depressed. I had anxiety. I had post-traumatic stress disorder. And I suppose I'm not surprised in some ways. And it was, things were pretty rough for a few years. 
Um, I was very lucky. I had an incredible partner who, I, you know, I still do. He stuck around. That was nice. Um, and and there were people who were very patient with me, who looked out for me and who helped me do the work that I, that I really, you know, that I really wanted to do, that I really wanted to be able to, to tell these stories and to, um, but people who managed to also keep me as safe as possible in that situation. Um, and I'm very grateful for that because it can't have been easy, especially mm. now looking back on it with that, you know, the benefit of, of many years having gone by. I, I kind of look at that and think, God, that was, that was amazing how that happened. Can I just say, I think these discussions are really important for young journalists to listen to and mm. to hear. Mm-hmm. Because I could imagine these young journalists going through the scene at the moment, not necessarily embedded in a war zone, but when I think about the abuse that's held at journalists at the moment, mm. some of the things they're having to report on, I could imagine it's leading to that high stress situation. They're learning to how, how to handle that high stress and then some of the normal life. I would imagine some of them are probably listening, going, oh, yeah, I feel easily irritated when I'm in traffic. I really hate doing the dishes more than I used to hate doing the dishes. I don't know how to handle doing the dishes. And and you lose you lose perspective on, on meaning and what matters. Mm. You know, it, it's almost like the scene, I don't know if you know The Hurt Locker, the movie, where he's walking around near the end of the film in the supermarket. And I remember saying to my husband, that's, that's it. That's... It that encapsulates that kind of pointlessness of when you when you get so used to um, you know living life at ninety k's an hour or whatever it is when you have to come back to forty mm. everything feels pointless and like what what am I doing why am I bothering you know and 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 it's finding it's trying to find that meaning and it's I remember talking to um, some of my colleagues some quite young reporters who were chucked in with reporting on the aftermath of the Christchurch shooting and saying to them, just book the EAP counselling appointment. Mm. You maybe don't think you need it. You maybe, And you maybe don't need it, and I hope you don't, but you might just need it. So even if you go along and it feels completely pointless, just, just go along and see. And if you don't need to go for another one, that's great. And if you do, then that's maybe helped. Um, and be aware that it might not happen straight away some people it does some mm. people it doesn't you know for me it was about three months had about a three month lag that initial time and I think that can be quite tricky if it doesn't come out straight away whatever your kind of emotions or your reaction is and it pops up later you can think well, what's that got to do with because you don't necessarily connect the two things you've maybe moved on in your life maybe things have changed and it's just not something that you've got your eye on anymore and I think certainly now off the back of the parliamentary protests some of the you know again some quite young journalists were going down there early in the morning and then being yelled at and being named all sorts of things under the sun and it's really confronting and you don't just sort of clock in and clock out on those Mm. I remember sitting with a room full of uh, media people would have been months after the shooting Mm. sitting down with them and I had a a counsellor in the room and I just started I asked them to list the um, symptoms of PTSD (laughs) 
And I'd been chatting with these media people before and just asking them how life was. So mm. one of them had just had completely lost their appetite. No idea why they'd lost their appetite. Another one was having random heart palpitations. Mm-hmm. Another one was finding themselves waking randomly in the middle of the night and didn't know why. And you're right, because we're a few months on, they weren't connecting the dots. So as yeah. soon as he started listing the symptoms, they all had an aha moment. Uh, and the encouragement to go and talk to EAP mm. or the various uh, counselling services that our media organisations connect to is really, really valued, but valuable advice. So bravo. Yeah. Let's jump into the big, hairy, meaty conversation that we're going to have. This is the, mm. the big story that we want to talk about. Mm. Unthinkable, the podcast. Tell us about it. Uh, well, it was a long time in the making, that one. I think it was about three and a half or four years from start to finish. Um where that all started was one of my husband's friends at work. He and his wife were having a baby and they had their daughter. They knew that she had some heart issues, but, you know, lots of surgery, lots of fantastic medical care at Starship. And I think if I remember rightly, my husband went out with his friend to have a beer because um, their daughter had just been sort of given the the tick that she was going to need more Operations. She was going to need more um, medical care later in life, but you know, for now, you know, it was it was all good. And um, he went out and had a beer with them on the Thursday night, and she died in her baby gym on the Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And she was three months old. And I remember Lee saying to me, my husband, about what had happened, and and just having that absolute disbelief. And I think I said to him, what, what do you mean she's died? You know, I, and it sounds awful to say it like that. But I mean, I just, I didn't, I, I couldn't make sense of it. And over the next five years, um, we had five friends or colleagues who lost a baby. And at the point that we got to number four, that was my friend who also works here at RNZ, Kate Gudsell. And I mean, I have to say, I was aghast and devastated. And I just, I couldn't believe what was happening because you don't expect babies to die. And I don't remember growing up particularly, my, you know, my, my parents or other people around me having friends that this had happened to. Actually, they had, but it was, I think it was when I was very little. And I just had one of those moments where I was like, what is, go- what is going on here? Is there something going on here? And if so, what is it? And two of them were, were colleagues of my, of my husband's. Then we had two of my colleagues here at RNZ. And then number five was a, a friend of my, par- another parent at my son's school. Uh, had a stillborn baby at 39 weeks. And th- so that was our five in five years. And I just thought, is there something going on with the medical system? Like, I don't understand what's going on here because it seems to me that there's something very wrong. It's like the life has got out of order and kilter here. And looking at those examples, um, there isn't anything that connects them, which is unsatisfactory, but also it doesn't speak to a wider problem as such, which is maybe comforting in some ways. But I just, I, I got to that point where I just thought, I don't understand this and I need to be able to understand this. And I approached Kate and her husband, Sam, 
and sort of asked them if they would be willing to talk to me about it on tape. And I said, I don't know what this is going to be. I don't know if it's going to be anything. Maybe it'll just be you talking to me and you can keep that for your own personal archive. You know, I, I don't know what this is going to be. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if I'll get RNZ support to make this. You know, I, I don't know what this is going to be, but I think if we don't try to capture it now, we're going to lose what is going on. And they were pregnant with their second child at this point. You know, I sort of said to Kate, you know, would you be willing to talk to me about this, about the journey you've been through, but also about the, the journey you're now on, still trying to have a family when your first child dies? What is that like? What does that look like? Because I don't understand what that looks like. And they went away and how do we think about it? And I was actually quite surprised when they came back and they said yes. And I think it was Sam, actually, that got it over the line. I think he was very keen to talk about it. And um, so we just started doing interviews. I mean, conversations. I don't really know what they were. We had microphones, but like the setup we've got here, we, we sort of had microphones and I would go up and talk to them on a Friday, often Friday afternoons. You know, we sort of checked in several times across Kate's pregnancy. And although it was it was a very kind of slow unfurling of the story, it felt very high stakes because this is people's personal pain. This is their life that has fallen apart and I'm not a trained counsellor or a trained anything apart from a trained journalist. Um, and asking questions around those very difficult situations. Um, there was almost nothing off limits, which I thought was very open of them, actually, and very trusting of them. But with that comes the the responsibility to hold that story very gently and to be very respectful of it. So it took a long time to, to tell it, partly because they ended up having two children um, in the time that we made the podcast, it took to, to get the podcast series made. But in a way, that gave us the time to get it right, not rush something because of a deadline. And it just, it, it gave me thinking time. It gave them thinking time, actually, as well. I remember one time driving back from their house uh, after one of these conversations and just thinking how very lonely it is and how isolating it could be and how extraordinary it was to see them turn towards each other at a time where it would have been very easy to turn away. And however awful, and it is awful, um, having seen so many friends go through this, it is awful. But to see that hope and to see the relationship survive and thrive and to see, you know, they had two more children, to see the hope that comes from that, from the the place that is the the pit of despair. I find that actually an incredibly meaningful story to tell because I think we all need some hope. Mm. Doesn't say something amazing about the nature of our humanity mm. and how we deal with grief. Grief can be destructive, but it can also be incredibly sacred mm -hmm. and forming. I think about a couple of families that I've walked through as a church minister mm. through the loss of uh, a young one as well. And it it does, it hits in a completely different way mm. from the loss of a parent, even the loss of a friend. It's just not the way that it's meant to be. It's not the way that it's meant to be. And I think we're very kind of hardwired to, you know, to be prepared to, to bury our parents, but not our children. And it's a very kind of worrying way. It feels like 
there's something really wrong when this happens. And talking to other people, again, for the podcast from um, people who'd been involved in SANS, the organisation that helps support bereaved parents, um, talking to a woman called Vicky Culling, who had been the president, I think, of SANS, and she has kind of dedicated her work, her sort of her life's mahi to this, that it's around 600 families a year that go through this, mm. which is twice the road toll. And that was the bit that just hit me between the eyes. I thought, oh my God, how much do we talk about the road toll? And how much do we talk about dead children? And I get it, nobody wants to talk about dead children. In fact, I remember one of my friends saying to me, who do you think's even going to listen to your podcast about dead babies, Susie? And I said, well, I don't know, but I think it's a story that needs to be told because we're not telling these stories otherwise. And that means we're leaving people in this kind of limbo where... They don't want to necessarily bring it up with their friends. They don't know if they can how they can talk about it. People are incredibly awkward often around it. So it just becomes this kind of unspoken, shameful, frightening part of people's lives that they can't process and they can't move past and they mm. can't move on from. And you probably never move on from losing a child. But I think being able to try to live with it is a different question. And after the podcast came out, um, I was very heartened to see that the government had was taking a look at the sort of a maternity action plan and having a what's called a bereavement pathway, which I think is still in the works. I don't think we've had it come out the other end yet. Um, but actually beginning to draw different services together because there isn't a manual for what you do when you leave the hospital without your baby. And a lot of the services are run by charities, so it's very much you're in a situation of relying on other people's goodwill and actually maybe there should be more than that to to pick up the pieces and to help people pick up the pieces when something like that happens because it's shattering yeah i haven't seen the stats uh, i have no idea what the stats are in terms of listeners of the podcast but it's a story that affects thousands of people thousands of people have never had their story told as you've just said and mm. have sat in rooms on their own crying yeah, uh, marriages are broken down yeah. because the because of it couldn't yeah. handle the grief. Nobody's told their story. No, um, and and to have you know in this in the way that having a child is is such a huge and you know and let's face it often quite brutal experience. If that experience doesn't have the happy ending, what do you do with that story and that energy and all of that experience? If you if you don't give it voice or if you can't give it voice or if it's if it's seen as being a shameful thing in your culture or if it's just too awkward and you don't know where to begin. You know, that is the kind of thing that can absolutely, you know, eat people up. And I, at one point I asked Kate and Sam, you know, how did you not just like drink your way through it? Or how did you find something in yourself to, to go past that? And And it was for them, they wanted to... They were, they were really focused. They really wanted to have children. They loved each other. They wanted to have a family. And so they tried to have a family and you keep on trying. And that's what, I mean, it's it's what we do as humans, isn't it? We, we kind of keep on trying. And in many areas of your life, we come up against really sort of horrendous happenings. But yet humans do retain hope often and, and keep on trying. And it is one of the very beautiful parts of humanity. 
and the way we keep weaving stories together. Like I think about parents who, who have been given the chance to process it well, as well as one can process it, where the child has been, especially if, it, if they haven't had a few months, but where a name has been given and an identity has been given and then that child died early is woven into that family for the rest of that family's existence and has a huge impact beyond the little life that they had. Mm. It's phenomenal. Yeah, I think as well. I mean, looking back on my own um, on my own family, my grandmother on my mum's side, she was one of 11 children and 10 made it to adulthood. And there was one, my favourite great aunt actually, was she was the second time around of one of the names that was used in the family because I guess you have 11 children, you run out of names that you like. Um, and... <laughs> And so she was the, you know, she was the Christina that made it to adulthood as opposed to Christina, her sister, who had died, I think, about 10 years earlier. And um, it's something that Vicky Culling said, the woman who um, worked with Sands, was she said, you know, they talk about a little life, not a little loss. And there's a lot of talk of um, something that I'd sort of, without, sort of unthinkingly had, had internalised myself, which was I had a sense that there was a kind of a hierarchy of grief, you know, that you... Someone lives to be 90-odd and we all sort of, at the funeral, would talk about them having a good innings and raising a glass to them and all that kind of thing. But we don't do that about babies. Mm. And why is it that we value the longer life more than the, the life that is actually the loss of potential? And I found that a really interesting kind of philosophical question. You know, I have two children, but I've also had two miscarriages. And it was it was quite instructive talking to, to my children when I was making the podcast because, you know, they knew what it was about and everything. And, you know, they know Kate and Sam and, and what had happened and and also our, our other friends that this had happened to. And, and in a way, it was very instructive to talk to them about it because they would ask questions like, but if you'd had that baby, then would you have had me? And it does give you that pause and that sort of shift in time. And I said, well, I wouldn't have been able to have both of those babies because the time wouldn't, the timing wouldn't have made sense because one of them wouldn't have been born before the next one would have come along. But, you know, it's, it is extraordinary how life turns out and where, you know, we persevered, even though the evidence was telling us that it wasn't happening until it was um, with children, that it was some of those very simple ideas about how we welcome new life into the world and how we say goodbye to life are not always things that people are comfortable talking about. But actually, childbirth is a pretty brutal game. So maybe we need to, to try to be a little bit, if not a little bit more comfortable, certainly a little bit more open and patient to people telling some of those stories around what happens to them. Yeah. Your career then, thinking about that, uh, spans telling some stories about some of the grittiest parts of what it means to be human. And I think we like to think that life is some sort of romantic movie where everything works out well, mm. but the brutality is going to keep on going. But humanity keeps on going in the middle of it too and weaving hope into the middle of it. I'm interested mm. in... Because this story is very different from war broadcasting and many of the other stories that you've told. 
going forward with what you're going to be doing now, podcasting and telling mm. more stories, how might this one have taught you some new things, given you some new tools, changed your storytelling? Oh, well, it's, I don't really know what, exactly what the new um, what the new job's going to look like. Cause it all, it's all it's all very new. I haven't even started yet, I suppose. Um, I think of myself as a storyteller. Um, I went to drama school before I became a journalist. And so it is about telling stories. Um, I think in a lot of ways that is what makes the world go round and it's what make, makes people tick and it's what makes us make sense of the world in some ways. And... The thing that I that making the unthinkable taught me was from that audio storytelling point of view that there are times that you just let the words be and there are other times that sound or music or all these other layers that you can add just bring that to life more that can just add the frisson or or make people feel one of the sensations of what's going on and there's there's a bit in it's in the first episode where Sam is talking about the immediate aftermath of Kate giving birth and their daughter's been kind of whisked away to the um, neonatal unit and he talks about how it was really cold in the room and I was working with an amazing sound engineer here at RNZ William Saunders who um, we sort of put the, the whole podcast together hours and hours and hours in the studio so thank you William but he sort of created this sound from some of the music that we had which immediately the way it was dropped in and the way he mixed it made it feel cold and actually just thinking about it now I can feel kind of the goosebumps rising on my um, on my arms and that real quality that can be brought to storytelling always feels to me like that's where the magic sits mm. and to be able to do that in a in a recorded way rather than you know on that one one-to-one -one way that you you would maybe you know tell a ghost story to your kids or whatever and you get the hairs <laughs> in the back of your neck to rise that felt to me like a real a real gift actually to to be able to hold that you know forever in a way that can be so fleeting in other forms of storytelling so I'm really looking forward to to being able to do more of that, to be able to, to craft and to give that, that richness and that kind of fullness to stories, to have the time to be able to do it, which is such a wonderful thing that, you know, three-minute interviews or morning report don't always give you, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but The Unthinkable definitely taught me that you have to hold people's stories tightly but, but gently. Mm. Thinking about the future of journalism in Aotearoa, New Zealand, mm. what do you think it looks like? I don't know. Um, I, I know. I knew you were going to ask me this. <laughs> I've been thinking about it. Um, there are so many stories to tell. I mean, there's no shortage from that side of things. I do look at um, the world, which does seem to be becoming more polarised, and that makes me anxious. I think at the moment, New Zealand is relatively well-placed... But if we look to other big democracies around the world, I don't think we can be too comfortable mm. where we're at. I think from, you know, I, I work at RNZ and a, from the RNZ perspective, I suppose um, the fact that there's going to be 
greater investment in public media feels like a good thing with the we're not allowed to call it a merger the merger <laughs> of TVNZ sorry I can't remember the right term um, but I worry that we're not able or we're not as able sometimes to hear each other at the moment and, and that troubles me mm. Susie I want to close by saying thank you Thank you for your service over many years. Thank you for serving Morning Report and many New Zealanders as they uh, wake up. I also want to say thank you because I was reading a review from the spin-off of The Unthinkable, and that review talked about you giving space and presence, being present uh, in the interviews. As a chaplain, I see chaplaincy as all about just being present Mm. with people. And I think you did an amazing job of that with a very... Uh, harrowing story with the unthinkable something that needed gentleness and needed kindness and I think you brought that to the table so as I think about your career moving forward and what comes next I hope that the phrase to get Susied or to be Susied (laughs) isn't just about a grilling but is about a recognition of your professionalism and your ability to hold story well that when the phrase someone got Susied gets used that it's used in a way that says that was some amazing storytelling so Thank you. Thank you. Nga mihi nui, Susie. Thank you for generously taking the time to sit down for this kōrero, opening up a number of important topics. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for providing the studio to record with Susie and for hosting this series. Also, a big thanks to you for listening. I appreciate it. And a big thanks to Josh Couch and Steph So for producing this podcast. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who'd like it. And as this season of Recovering draws to a close, also remember to follow to catch future episodes when we release another season. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media and demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up and we'll pay for the coffee.